0: Chapter 29 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E.F. Knight This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 29 Homeward Bound At half-past four on the morning of the 4th of November, we were outside the Boca Harbor, homeward bound at last. We shaped our course for Montevideo, at which port I had to call, having left my chronometers there during my travels in the River Plate Republics. It was blowing very hard from the southwest, so we scudded under three-reefed mainsail, passing the Chico lightship at 9 a.m., having run 45 miles in four and a half hours, a speed which astonished somewhat my Italian mariners. It was somewhere near here that we hove to and filled our breakers and tanks with the muddy, yet sweet and wholesome water of the estuary, as is the practice of outward-bound vessels." The water was in no way brackish, though we were out of sight of land, and, to all appearance, in the midst of a tempestuous ocean. The Pompero had by this time raised the usual steep, breaking seas that render the navigation of these shallow waters so perilous, and my Italians expressed great delight and astonishment when they observed how splendidly the little Falcon rose to each sea, steering perfectly easy all the while. Near the Chico, we passed the new Argentine man of war, the Admirante Brown. This vessel was constructed in England and recently steamed over the Atlantic with the intention of reaching some port of the Argentine Republic. This she has not done and will never do, for it is found that this white elephant draws too much water to enter Argentine waters at all. So, here she remains at anchor in the high seas, disconsolately rolling about, a constant butt for the caricaturists and comic papers of Montevideo. At about 2 p.m., we passed the Curiaser lightship. The sea near here was tumbling about, very uncomfortably, for the tide and wind were opposed to each other. Some ten miles farther on, we passed close to a bark of about 500 tons that had evidently foundered within a few hours. As the depth of the estuary hereabouts is not much more than five fathoms, her masts were above water, her canvas was still on her, flapping about and tearing in the violent wind, with a noise like that of irregular musketry fire. There were no men to be seen in her rigging, so we presumed some passing vessel had rendered assistance to the crew. This, we learnt later on at Montevideo, had been the case. This vessel was an old Italian wooden corvette of war that had recently been sold to some Italians of Montevideo, Who had converted her into a river merchant bark. At 9 p.m., after a fast voyage of 16 hours, we came to an anchor off the custom house of Montevideo, where we lay all night, rolling and pitching into the nasty seas that make this so-called harbor so uncomfortable. I had purposed remaining at Montevideo but four days, which I calculated was a sufficient time wherein to complete all our preparations for sea but circumstances in the shape of a violent storm considerably delayed our departure. During our outward voyage, we had enjoyed singular immunity from bad weather, but during the first month or so of our homeward journey, we certainly encountered more than our share of it. It is true that this was the tempestuous season of this portion of the South Atlantic, when fierce pomperos are a frequent occurrence. The weather had been unsettled for some time. On the 6th of November, two days after our arrival in Montevideo, the barometer commenced to fall steadily. It was intensely close and hot throughout the day, and in the afternoon we observed that our rigging was entirely covered with those fine filaments like spider's webs, which sailors that have visited these seas call virgins' threads. This phenomenon is common on the river plate, and is said to precede a strong pampero. Throughout the following day, there were many clear signs of an impending storm visible, and ancient mariners on the shore shook their heads. In the morning of the 8th of November, it was blowing hard, but it was not until 5 in the evening that the pampero burst upon us with its usual suddenness, but with a fury that I have never experienced in any wind before or since." The pompero of these seas is a true hurricane, and though not of so long a duration as the hurricanes of the West Indies and other seas, it is often quite as violent as long as it lasts. On this occasion, a perfectly clear sky became, of a sudden, quite obscured to us by great whirling clouds of dust that enveloped the whole city and the roads. Then the hurricane came down with a great roar, swung all the vessels round with a violent jerk, causing many to drag their anchors, thereby fouling each other and inflicting much damage. We had two anchors down, with sixty fathoms of chain on each, and dragged but an inconsiderable distance. But the strain on our chains was tremendous. We seemed to be drawn under water at times during the more violent gusts. We pitched and tumbled about in a manner that threatened to be even dangerous, and as the wind blew off all the tops of the waves, driving solid sheets of water through the air... These flew over our decks, almost drowning anyone who ventured above. We pitched our bows, too, so deeply into the seas, that I entertained serious fears at times lest we should founder at anchor. The first squall was far too furious to last long. It was circular, as all such very violent storms are, going around all the points of the compass. The dust was soon blown away, and then, as far as one could see it through the blinding spray, The aspect of the sea, sky, and city under this fearful visitation was really awful and magnificent. The atmosphere passed through several extraordinary changes of color, now brick red, now pale green, the ships, houses, and vegetation all assuming the same hue. The lightning, forked and purple in color, was vivid, as it perhaps only can be in this highly electric region. Other electric phenomena were not wanting. Each wave in the roads was capped with a flame of fire, and the large hailstones that fell seemed to be mixed with showers of sparks. The numerous casualties on shore and afloat testified to the power of the wind. Many people were killed, and the city was filled with consternation. Hundreds of trees were uprooted, fifteen strong stone houses were blown down in a row on the seafront the whole of the new exhibition building at Buenos Aires was destroyed, and, among the many other accidents to the shipping, a large bark at anchor off Montevideo with all canvas stowed was capsized by the first gust. The Falcon was in great peril of being utterly lost, either by foundering or collision with the numerous craft that had parted their chains and were driving helplessly on shore. Lucky it was for us that this first cyclonic squall only lasted about half an hour when the wind settled down to a comparatively gentle, strong southwesterly gale. We now found ourselves in a most dangerous position. We had anchored near several of the heavy iron-ribbed lighters which are used to discharge the cargoes from vessels in the outer roads. These were all much larger craft than the Falcon. Now it happened during the cyclone that in consequence of some or as more probable all of us having dragged our anchors, we had collected together into a dense group and collisions were frequent between different craft as they rose and fell on the heavy seas. To collide with one of these tough monsters probably meant destruction to the lighter and more delicate yacht. One did come foul of us and carried away the greater part of our starboard rail and the stanchions of the hand rope but luckily inflicted no serious damage. Then she tried to come on the top of us, and bringing her bowsprit down on our decks, snapped it off short. Before any serious damage had come about, I had sent Panissa on board of her to pay out her chain. This he managed to do, and so she fell away clear of us. The wretched Panissa, however, found it impossible to climb back to the falcon again, So he had to remain wet and blanketless on the deserted lighter until the weather moderated on the following day, and we were enabled to lower a boat to take him off. But now we observed a far more serious cause of danger just astern of us. We had dragged right under the iron bows of another larger and also deserted lighter. Her bowsprit was not a yard from our bows. As the great wave passed under us and raised her, She seemed to be right over us and about to fall and inevitably cut us down and sink us. I sent a man on board her, but he could give her no further scope of chain. We could not move from our own position without certainly fouling some lighter, so all we could do was to hope for the best and wait. We were certainly in a position of great danger. We all knew that if the falcon dragged her anchors but six feet more, she would without fail be cut down and sunk." All through that stormy night and the next day we watched with straining eyes that cruel-looking iron-bound bough rising and falling behind us, expecting in each fiercer gust of the storm or after some higher wave than usual to hear the dull thud and the sound of crushing timbers. I think that the most speculative of underwriters would have refused to have anything to do with a falcon's insurance had he seen her then. The poor old vessel's life was not worth much, so little that the men collected their watches and such valuables about them in expectation of our vessel sinking beneath our feet at any moment. But the old falcon was not yet to die. She had dragged so far, but having got as near danger as she conveniently could, she stopped and did not go astern another inch all through the pump barrel. Our escape certainly seemed miraculous, and had the good effect of inspiring my Italians with a profound faith in the luck of the vessel. Nearly a week went by before our repairs were effected, for during that time a nasty sea was nearly constantly running in the harbor, which rendered carpenters' work difficult on board. Besides, the Italian ship carpenter we had engaged invariably got seasick when our vessel rolled about to any extent but at last the little craft was once more ready for sea. All her stores were on board, tin meats, rum, and water for four months, a large cask of eggs preserved in lime water on deck, and an abundance of vegetables. All the standing and running rigging had been carefully overhauled and replaced where necessary. On the 15th of November, I got a clean bill of health for Pernambuco, brought the chronometers on board, and gave orders for sailing that evening. All hands were then employed in securing everything on deck and below, lashing the boat bottom upwards on the deck, and so on. The weather was glorious, with every prospect of it remaining so, and we sailed out of the harbor at seven in the evening in grand style, with spinnaker and top sail set. We saluted the English gunboats as we passed them, then, having got outside the bay, found that we had a light wind right aft to help us up the coast. All seemed in our favor, and we entertained hopes of being rapidly carried into the calm, tropic seas out of this stormy region, for a pampero was not a phenomenon we had all desired to encounter out at sea. We had seen quite enough of the fury of this wind in port. No sooner were we well outside the harbor than the mate came up to me and asked me if I had any objection to the voyage being inaugurated according to the usual custom on Genoese vessels. On hearing what this ceremony consisted of, I at once assented. He called the hands aft, made a little speech in Genoese in which he exhorted them to do their duty, be obedient and respectful to the captain, and so forth. Then a glass of rum was served to each the prosperity of the voyage drunk and the watches formally set. The voyage that was now before us was to be a far longer one than any we had yet undertaken during our cruise. Not that the direct distance to our next port, Bahia, at which I proposed calling on my way to Pernambuco, was great. From Montevideo to the Bay of All Saints is roughly 1,800 nautical miles. But we anticipated a headwind all the way, and a dead beat of 1,800 miles against a confused and choppy sea, not to mention a contrary current, is somewhat of an undertaking. The southeast trade wind does not blow home to the Brazilian coast, but at the distance of several hundred miles from it, is deflected in its course and pursues a direction nearly parallel to the land. For one half the year, this wind blows down the coast, for the other half, up it. These seasons are known as those of the northerly and southerly Brazilian monsoons, a misnomer, as anyone who reads the definition of monsoon in any physical geography can see for himself. Now, we left Montevideo in the middle of the northerly monsoon, when that wind blows boisterously from the northeast, accompanied by heavy rains and frequent squalls, so we anticipated a long period of uncomfortable tossing about with a good deal of water tumbling over our bows at times. Nor were we disappointed. It is the rule for vessels bound north from the river plate and south Brazilian ports, during the prevalence of this unfavorable monsoon, to sail some 700 miles to the eastward, or even considerably to the south of east, close hauled on the port tack, before they go about and make their northering. And with all this offing, it is not unusual for a clumsy craft to fail to weather Cape San Roque, that bugbear of South Atlantic mariners. But with a fore and after like ours, that could sail a little over four points off the wind, such precautions were unnecessary, for we could make eastering when the wind was favorable for doing so, and go about whenever a shift of wind rendered the other tack the most advantageous. By making use of every turn of the unsteady, ever-varying monsoon, we made a fairly smart passage. A large bark left Montevideo the same day as ourselves. We both arrived at Bahia on the same day, after a voyage of 38 days. But, whereas we sailed considerably out of our course in order to visit the desert island of Trinidad, and there remained at anchor for nine days— I think we can fairly boast of having given that bark a very undeniable beating. The distance to Bahia is, as I have said, about 1,800 miles, but with our rather zigzag course and trip to Trinidad, we made over 3,000 miles of it. We passed Flora's Light at about 11 on the night of our departure. Then the wind fell away, and but light puffs occasionally filled our spinnaker as we drifted on slowly before the easterly set of the river plate. On the following morning, a five-knot breeze sprang up from the west, before which we scudded east under all canvas. We passed by Lobos Island and Maldonado Bay, and at sunset perceived Cape Santa Maria to the west-northwest, from which we took our departure. On relieving the watch at eight o'clock of our third morning out, I found that we were out of sight of land and in blue water once more. The wind had now veered to the quarter from which it was to be expected northeast, so sailing full and by on the port tack, we were enabled to steer about east. This wind gradually freshened, a confused sea rose, and the sky became obscured by heavy banks of clouds. This weather lasted for the next three days, and very uncomfortable it was. The falcon continually pitched her nose into the short, choppy seas, taking more water on board each time than during the whole outward voyage. She labored a good deal at times, and we found it necessary to relieve her by taking two reefs in the mainsail and shifting the first for the storm jib. All our clothing was wet through during this time, as indeed it generally was for a month afterwards, while we battled with the northeast monsoon, our paraffin stove being, of course, not capable of doing much in the way of drying. We had to wait for the rare sun to do that. By this time, I had been able to come to a fairly just estimate of my Genoese crew. On the whole, I was satisfied with them. With the exception of Panissa, they were up to their work and very willing to do it, but they were not of overly clean habits. I often used to give the mate lectures on this subject, describe to him the fastidious order and cleanliness which distinguish an English yacht and picture to him the horror with which our slovenly vessel would be regarded in an English yachting harbor such as cows. But it was of no use. I could not overcome the nature of these mariners. An Italian considers dirt as a comfortable sort of thing. As long as everything is fairly ship-shaped for practical purposes of seamanship, he is content. He looks upon tidiness and the removal of filth as a foolish waste of time." After vain attempts to bring my Genoese over to my views, I had to give in for the sake of peace and contented myself with merely insisting on an approximate cleanliness while in port. Our cook, Paolo Ciarlo, a very worthy fellow, was much puzzled at first with the paraffin stove and the tinned meats, but he soon fell into falcon ways and ingeniously managed to evolve the very fair cuisine a italienne out of the preserved meats of Australia. This Palo was a great fisherman. He would contrive all sorts of quaint machines wherewith to tempt the finny dwellers of the deep. He made one most diabolical-looking apparatus, a sort of wooden egg bristling with spikes an inch and more long. With this he caught polypi, a great luxury to Italians, though I cannot say I appreciate them myself. But we caught better fish than these, palomitas, dolphins, and kingfish, which latter may be defined as a giant deep-sea mackerel. From a small vessel like ours, many more fish can be caught than from a faster-sailing vessel. Indeed, during our homeward voyage, we were never without fresh fish on board, for the tropical seas of Brazil abound in life. The dolphins were our favorites, and we often caught fine fellows weighing 50 or 60 pounds. We always towed a stout 20-fathom line behind us with a large hook baited as a rule with a scrap of white rag merely, unless we had a flying fish to put on, for this is the greatest temptation one can offer to a dolphin. We found a speed of about four knots the most favorable for our deep-sea fishing. As soon as some big dolphin or kingfish took the bait, there would be great excitement on board. The steersman would shove his tiller hard down, and the vessel would fly up in the wind with all sails flapping, even the spinnaker would be taken aback at times. The way of the vessel thus checked, that arch fisherman, the cook, who always rushed on deck as soon as he heard the cry of, A FISH! would haul in the line with a face distorted with excitement, till the monster would be right under our stern, darting about hither and thither in frantic terror." Then another hand, who was standing ready with grain or harpoon in hand on the taffrail, would deftly throw it, and in another moment a beautiful 60-pound dolphin, all purple and gold, would be flying about our decks, beating it with very powerful tail with blows that sounded like heavy hammers. Then the cook would exult and chuckle and draw his long knife to prepare the beautiful creature for culinary purposes. When a fish escaped from our hooks, the anguish with which he would stamp about the decks, and the fluency of his swearing, were fearful to see and hear. End of chapter twenty-nine